for the last few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series called Following the Way of Jesus. And, and this sermon series, this, this theme is really going to be the theme uh, we're going to track with through this whole next year. So all of the different sermon series that we're going to do this coming year are all going to examine different facets of what does it mean to follow the way of Jesus. And uh, the reason is this, before anyone was ever known as a Christian, uh, before you said, I'm a Christian, or anybody had ever heard of that before, uh, the followers of Jesus were known as followers of the way. Uh, Now, the way was a distinctly different way of life. It was a way of following Jesus. And God doesn't change, and the gospel doesn't change, but the culture and the context of the followers of Jesus changes all the time. And so every new generation of Christian needs to figure out, to to learn and maybe relearn what it means, what it looks like in real life to follow the way of Jesus. How do we follow the way of Jesus in the areas of our relationships, our families, our, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, throughout the pattern of our lives? So that's what we're gonna be examining this whole coming year. Uh, for the last month, we've been going through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Uh, and just, we've seen that the way of Jesus is distinctive. It's a distinctive way. It leads to a holy life. It leads to a life of remarkable love. And it also leads to a life of humility and helpfulness. And so today, we're jumping over to John's gospel. And we're going to be in John chapter 1 this week and next week. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, please grab them and open them to John chapter 1. If you're not sure what John is, look it up in the table of contents. Now, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this text together. So please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this place Uh, the YMCA. Please bless the Y here in the Fox Valley. Lord, thank you for uh, their generosity in in letting us use their space and take over their space uh, for years now. Thank you, Lord, for providing a place for us to worship. And Father, we, we now approach your word with an expectancy that you will speak through your word to us today in a way that will not only help us to understand who you are better, but will also change us fundamentally for the good. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Let's read through this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is God's word. So the first four books of the New Testament in the Bible are known as the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's the fourth Gospel. These books are like theological biographies of the life and the ministry and the teaching and ultimately the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. 
Now, these weren't made-up accounts, stories, myths, made up hundreds of years later. The, the gospel accounts of Jesus are all written by people who were there, who saw him, who heard him, who followed him imperfectly, but they were there. Or like Luke's gospel, they were, uh, Luke's gospel was a result of a careful investigation where Luke, who was a physician by trade, he would interview eyewitnesses, people who were there in order to understand what Jesus said and did. So here in John's gospel, this most likely was written toward the end of John's life. When he started following Jesus, John was a young man. He was kind of a wild man. I love John. Initially, Jesus gave him the nickname, one of the sons of thunder. And then later in his old age, he was known as the apostle of love. That's the kind of impact and transformation following Jesus can have on your life. A son of thunder can become an apostle of love. Well, as a young man, uh, John started following Jesus. And after a few years of this, Jesus called him and then sent him out as an apostle or a witness in order to bear witness to what he had seen and heard of the life and ministry of Jesus. And here we have the result of his work in his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. At the end of his gospel account, at the end of the book of John, John tells us explicitly why he wrote. It wasn't just for fun. It wasn't just because he thought he had an interesting book to sell. It was because of this. John writes this. His purpose of writing was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose for writing. He wants you to know Jesus and in knowing, trust, put your faith in him and find true and abundant life in the name of Jesus. So he begins his gospel account, this introduction here, verses one through 18, it's called the prologue to John's gospel. And in the prologue, John makes some startling claims about the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he introduces some of the key themes that will run throughout his gospel account. So let's look back at verse 14, just the beginning part of that verse. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What? What is going on here? All right, we started confusing. Let's pick it apart. Well, back in verse 1, which we didn't read, sorry, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, this is fascinating. This is theologically jam-packed with meaning. And John does this on purpose. He starts provocatively. He makes you want to know more. What? Who is the word? The word was with God, but then the word was God. The word, or the logos in the Greek, it wasn't just the words or the speech of God, which is clear, because my speech can't become a human being. <laughs> However, that's what John says here because he makes this opening introductory statement that the word was with God in the beginning. That's the beginning of the creation of all things, the beginning of time, the beginning of our universe. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible starts. John starts the new story of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then jump down to verse 14. We find that the Word of God becomes flesh. The Logos, or the Word of God, became a human being, and He made His dwelling among us. John says that the Word of God, who was with God and was God in the beginning of the universe, became flesh made his dwelling among us. And the the term for this became flesh or was made flesh, that's where we get our word incarnation from. If you've ever heard of anyone reference the incarnation of Jesus, usually around Christmas time, because that's kind of what Christmas is all about. When Jesus came into the world, was born, the, the word incarnation is from the Latin, meaning made flesh. That's right from this verse. And John is saying that this Jesus of Nazareth born to a young, poor couple, Mary and Joseph, raised in a small town, out of the way, off the beaten path. Uh, Not a lot of famous people come from Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter. That man was actually the, the word of God who was with God the Father in the beginning of all time and was himself God, the Son. The author of the book of Hebrews makes a similar startling statement about Jesus. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke, there's word, the word again. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. We find that record throughout the whole Old Testament in the Bible. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. In Jesus, God has given us his living, embodied word, his full and complete revelation of truth. That was just the first half of verse 14. Look back at verse 14. John says, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I was just born. I didn't come from anywhere before I was born. You understand? You were born. Jesus came into the world. He was sent by the Father. He was born into his own creation. That's what John is saying here. He came from the Father. He was the son of God, eternity past in heaven, who came into the finite of his own creation. No one else is like Jesus. At the incarnation of Christ, God took on flesh. He became a human being. He entered into history and made his dwelling among us. Now, I can't get through this verse without talking about dwelling. Because God's presence is the most important thing in life. The word for dwelling is another fascinating, loaded word that John chooses to use in his prologue. In the Greek, it's the same word that's translated tent or tabernacle in the Old Testament, especially in the account of the exodus of God's people. 
During the time of Moses, this would have been about 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, God led his people, the people that came from the family of Abraham and Sarah, the, the family that God chose to bless the world through their family. And God rescued or saved his people from captivity in the land of Egypt. He raised up a leader, Moses, and he led Moses and the people out of captivity into freedom, into new life, into the promised land. And he went with them. Check this out, Exodus 33, 7 through 11. Now Moses used to take a tent. There's the word that we have in John for dwelling. He used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord, anyone who wanted to speak to God would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with, to a friend. Now in a couple weeks, we get to start a whole series on friendship and the surprising power of friendship because as we saw in that passage, God is not ashamed to call us his friend and that is a whole different view of God than most of us were raised to have. But anyways, back to this series. We're, we're looking at this word tent or dwelling place. In the Old Testament, in the Exodus story, God wasn't ashamed to make his dwelling among his people. In fact, that was everything that God wanted for his people. Though he was separated from his people by sin and death and all the destruction and chaos, and wickedness of this world, God's heart for his people is to be with them, that he would be their God, and they would be his people, and we would be able to dwell together. So again, here, John is saying that in the person of Jesus, the living and eternal word of God, the one who was with God and who was God in the beginning, he made his dwelling, he, he set up camp, he tabernacled, among us, just like when God made his dwelling among his people in Exodus. So in Jesus, God came near. And that is God's heart for his people, for us. Presence. It's what we long for. It's what we need, whether or not we understand what we're seeking and what we're missing. Well, what is this Jesus like? Who is this God who desires to dwell among us? What was it like to have God dwell among people? Well, John says that Jesus was full of, what does it say? Grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and he was full of truth. Jesus was grace and he was truth. Then down in verse 16, John repeats this again. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given or in uh, grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. What was it like for God to dwell among his people? 
It's to be around a friend who is full of grace and truth. The law came through Moses. I mentioned the Exodus. After God rescued his people, he made a covenant with them. He entered into a, a special relationship with them where he said, okay, our relationship has to be defined by some things. There are some rules for my creation. There are some things you need to follow in order for you to live and thrive in this place that I have made for you. And that was the law. The law was given through Moses. Now, John says that this, he references this initial giving, the law, as a gift. It was a gift of God's grace. God never was obligated to tell us anything about how we should live or what the right way is to follow or how we might thrive and flourish in this life. So in that sense, the law was a gift of God's grace, but then came Jesus, an even greater gift Greater than the law, greater than Moses, greater than the old covenant, a new covenant established and accomplished by God himself in the person of Christ. Grace upon grace. Grace in the place of grace already given. That's, that's Jesus. He is our gift. At the end of the passage, John says that no one has ever seen the fullness of God the Father, except for Jesus. In the Old Testament, back to the story of Moses again, Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, if you did, you would be dead. You remember that? Okay, so we can't fully see the fullness of the glory of God, but every once in a while, God gives us as much glory as we can handle. And people come into the presence of a living and a holy God, and usually are terrified and think they're going to die. And God's like, don't fear, don't be afraid. I'm the one who wants to be with you, right? I'm the one who wants to dwell with you. I'll go with you. I'll sleep in a tent. That was the tabernacle. Did you get that reference? Okay, right. A tent. My wife doesn't sleep in a tent. God is willing to tent with us, to dwell with us. But Jesus... And when we understand the fullness of his grace and his truth, gives us like a window in to see and know God. He, the one who has the closest relationship with the Father. The Greek in that passage is hard to understand. To me, it's kind of weird. It sounds like Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. That's not a phrase we would ever use. That's why the NIV kind of says closest relationship. I kind of imagine an arm around a friend, side by side. You couldn't be closer. There's an intimacy there. The, the Son has intimacy with the Father, and through the Son we see the Father. That's why later in John's Gospel, Jesus says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What does this mean for us today? Well, there's too much to talk about with grace and truth for one sermon, so I'm going to break it up into two. This morning, I have seven facts about grace. Seven facts. What does this mean for us today? Seven facts about grace for you. Number one, grace is God's goodness to imperfect people. Anybody imperfect in here? Struggle with a few things from time to time? Like me? Yeah. Grace is God's goodness to imperfect people. Now, the dictionary definition is it's the free and unmerited favor of God, but I didn't really understand that. 
And so the more I wrestle with this, what grace looks like is God being good to us. Sometimes broken, sometimes good, sometimes sinful, sometimes okay. You know, we're kind of a mixed bag as people. We're imperfect people, but God is good to us. God is good. And we see this time and time again throughout the generations in the Bible. Why do we have the Old Testament in the Bible if all the good stuff comes in the New Testament? If God's holding back for the grace upon grace, why do we need so much? Most of the Bible is the Old Testament. It's because we see a record of God's goodness to generations of imperfect people. And friends, that gives me a lot of hope because I see myself more often than not in the, in the failed one, not the hero of the story. And through the full lens, the complete picture of the gospel in Jesus Christ, I see, oh, right. God is so good to imperfect people, people that fail, people that struggle, people that stumble, people that have doubt, people that have questions. Lord, why did you do that? Or why is this happening to me in my life? Or God, where are you right now? Grace is God's goodness to imperfect people. And in the record of of Scripture, and I hope in the record of your life, we see that God is good. His goodness is expressed in time and space. His goodness comes through his actions in creation, in the sustaining breath that we have in our lives right now. It's grace. It's a gift. Life is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Forgiveness for sin is a gift. Peace with God is a gift. Life eternal is a gift. All of these things are expressions of God's goodness to imperfect people. That's what grace is. Because of God's grace, people who don't have their lives or their theology all perfectly figured out can look back at the record of their life and say, wow, God is so good to me. Number one. Number two, grace is a gift, not a paycheck. Grace is a gift, not a paycheck. Grace is received. It is not earned. On your birthday, do you ever earn the presents you get? No. What did you ever do? You just were born. On our birthdays, we should give our moms gifts. That's That's who deserves the gift on our birthdays. Amen? Some of you are like, don't take my birthday presents away. I like presents. Well, yeah, me too. But did you deserve it? No. Maybe, sometimes, but usually not. You just were born. Now, a paycheck is something you have to earn. A paycheck is something you have to work for. You have to do your time. You have to come to the, you have to show up. You have to do what's expected of you. You meet at least the bar of good enough for whatever your place of employment is. And then you get paid. It's a transaction. It's kind of nice. You usually know what you're going to get. And so you know how much you need to put in. 
But either way, the transaction is valid. You put in something and you get something in return, but that's not grace. But so many people think that they need to work to earn the goodness or the blessing or the favor of God. I have to be a good person, they think, so that God will be good to me. But grace is a gift you receive. You just receive it. Now, God's character is perfect. I am somewhat inconsistent. I try to be a man of integrity, but then I get tired or hungry or frustrated at some situation. And sometimes my character is, you know, I'm trending up, I think, over the course of my life. But God's character is perfect. He has perfect integrity. God always acts consistently with his character. So God is always good. That is who God is. So grace flows out of God just because that's who God is. And that's his character on display. So God gives grace to imperfect people. That's just who God is. Do you want to know what the Father is like? He's gracious. And he's perfect. So he's always gracious. One of the repeated statements in the Bible about God's character is that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. God is gracious. So he pours out his goodness because it's just who he is. You don't have to earn it. You just have to receive it. Now, number three, grace is not fair. Grace isn't fair. Most people think that you have to be good in order to earn God's goodness because it just seems fair. And, it, and that's true. It is fair to get what you deserve. It is fair to be paid what you earned. But that's not how grace works. Grace isn't fair. Imperfect, sinful, broken people deserve judgment condemnation and punishment. That would be fair. But that's not grace. That's actually karma. How many Christians mistakenly believe in karma? That good comes to good people and bad comes to bad people. Now, there is a biblical principle of reaping and sowing. So generally speaking, if you continually pour out your life to bad ends, it's probably not gonna go well for you in your life, but sometimes it does. And why? We say, because life's not fair. Well, neither is grace. God pours out his goodness and grace to imperfect people, people who don't deserve it or necessarily earn his goodness, his love, his salvation, his life, peace, joy, all of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm so thankful that God isn't fair in his goodness. In fact, the gospel in some ways is the opposite of what we would expect from reaping and sowing. Because in the gospel, we actually reap what Jesus sowed. And he reaps what we have sowed. Because Jesus, when he lived, he lived the perfect life. He lived the life that we all should live. So what Jesus 
sowed was life. But he reaps what we have sowed. And in our imperfection, in our struggles, in our sin, we have sowed ultimately destruction and death. But Jesus on the cross died the death that we deserve. That's why Good Friday is such a big deal. But Jesus didn't just stay dead, he rose from the dead. That's why Easter is an even bigger deal than Good Friday. So Jesus in his life and death and resurrection has perfectly conquered and compensated for sin and death in the world. And so when we put our faith and trust in Christ, he reaps what we have sowed and we reap what he has sowed. He takes on our sin and death and we get his righteousness, his eternal life, his love and joy and peace. All of those things are ours. And of course that's not fair. Praise God. Grace isn't fair. Number four, grace is uniquely Christian. Grace is uniquely Christian. Let's review. Number one, grace is God's goodness to imperfect people. Number two, grace is a gift, not a paycheck. Number three, grace isn't fair. Number four, grace is uniquely Christian. Now, I was raised in a Christian home. We went to church. My folks were believers. We just kind of, it was a part of our regular life. So it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s, really, that I kind of realized what the gospel was all about. And I didn't just kind of go along with things in my family. I realized for the first time what Christianity was all about. I realized also what other world religions were about. The more I got to know the way of Jesus, I wanted to know what other ways are there out there in the world. Is how do we know that this is the, the way that we should follow? Well, one of the things I've observed in studying other religions is that there is no other religion in the world today or in history that has anything like the concept of grace. Obedience, absolutely. You need to obey God. A bunch of religions say that. Good and evil. The fact that there is, in fact, good and evil in the world. Morals aren't just relative. A bunch of religions say that. Worship. Yes, sacrifice, yes, prayer, yes, but not grace. Every other way says it's what you do that saves you. And the gospel is the opposite. It says what Jesus has done saves. And we receive that by grace, just receiving this gift of God. Even in the Old Testament, we see grace. That's where in our passage for the day, where, it's, where John said that we've received grace in the place of grace, grace upon grace. What about the grace of God in the Old Testament? Look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. This is such a funny passage to me, I don't know why. It feels like a put down, but then it actually is encouraging. The Lord, he's talking to Moses, through Moses, to the people of Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you catch that? 
It's kind of a diss. God was like, I didn't choose you because you were awesome. You were kind of tiny and you were a slave people. I mean, come on. You're building buildings for other people. Why would I want you? No, I wanted you. I chose you. I, I rescued you. I've blessed you. I've demonstrated my incredible goodness to you because I just love you and I want to be with you. And, and I also made a promise to your ancestors, to Abraham and Sarah. And I said I was going to bless everybody through your family. And so that's what I'm doing. The exodus, the whole rescue of God's people in the Old Testament, that was all a story of grace. The people hadn't earned salvation then, and we haven't earned it today either. What was true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament in Christ. God doesn't choose us because of our greatness or our goodness. He chooses us. He chose you in Christ because he loves you, period. Not for what you could bring to the table of his relationship. Not what you could do, mighty things, important things for his kingdom. Just because he loves you and wants to be with you, to dwell with you. No other religion has the concept of grace because no other religion has Jesus. The word of God who was with God and was God who became human, stepped into creation to give his flesh that he took on in order to save his people. Nobody else has that. Grace is uniquely Christian. Number five, grace softens a hardened heart. I'm gonna move a little quicker here. The grace and the goodness of God softens our hardened hearts. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament described the human heart as hardened like stone, a heart of stone apart from the work of God, the Holy Spirit. But when we see the grace of God in the gospel, when we see the gift of God uniquely in the person of Christ poured out for us in the gospel, it starts to soften that heart of stone so that when God removes that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, our hearts are soft now to the Lord. When we see what God was willing to do because of his love for us, it makes us want to love God and obey God and worship God and serve God. That's what grace does. Grace is like the power source behind this whole walk in the way of Jesus. But grace also softens our hearts toward one another, toward other people, toward other imperfect people who desperately need grace like I need grace and like you need grace. So in your families, with your kids, are, are your kids perfect? Mine aren't. Do our kids need grace? Yes, they do. That's one of the most important things that we can give our children as parents. Grace. The law condemns. The law punishes. I'm not saying don't do consequences and things like that as a parent. I'm just saying that the guiding principle for us in walking in the way of Jesus and following his way should be grace. Grace to imperfect people. Goodness when people screw up. Now, this isn't just for our kids. This is for everybody you know. Every person you know needs grace. 
Every person you talk to is going to need some grace. Maybe not in that moment, although sometimes your coworkers all need grace. The people in our government need a lot of grace. The people in our neighborhoods need grace. The people in this church need grace. Please hear me. The church is not a collection of perfect people. The church is this crazy, messed up group of people banded together trying to learn how to follow the way of Jesus. Why? By grace alone. Will there be screw-ups? Absolutely. Will there be struggles and stumbles? For sure. But we're following Christ. We're pursuing him by grace. Number six, Jesus is the ultimate gift of God's grace. And we've, we've covered this, I think. Jesus is the ultimate act of God's goodness to imperfect people, sending his son. Why? For, the, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. It wasn't to punish us. It wasn't to condemn us. It was to seek and to save the lost. How? By giving his life for our life. By dying so that we might have life and life abundant. And finally, number seven, grace means there's hope for everyone. If it's not dependent on my greatness and my goodness, that means I'm in. If it's, if it's dependent on the person and work of Jesus. There's hope for everyone. When Jesus was on the cross, he had two others with him. One who believed and trusted in him, even in that moment, and one who didn't. He doesn't pray the sinner's prayer, you know. He doesn't have, make a big, deep theological statement of faith. He doesn't join a church. He doesn't ever do anything for God at all. He just says, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise because of grace. Because of God's grace, there's hope for anyone. On your deathbed, preferably sooner, but because of grace, there's hope for everyone. Grace is... God's goodness to imperfect people. I want to expand that definition a little bit here. Grace is God's shocking, unfair, merciful, boundlessly rich, love-producing, life-giving goodness to imperfect people. Isn't that good news? That's the good news that our whole church is about. It's this. Please stand, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the goodness that you pour out into our lives. Thank you for your grace. 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 In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for listening to the Appleton Gospel Church podcast. Our mission is sharing good news, and we do that every week. To listen to more episodes, go to appletongospel.com.